Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we had just arrived in En Gedi, the natural oasis in the middle of the desert, right here in Israel. Right now, we're standing in front of the huge 120-foot waterfall. Actually, go ahead and just sit here, since it's nice and it's cool, and let's recap what we did last time. We learned that the place we're in right now, En Gedi, translates in English to uh, Spring of the Young Goat. I'm honestly not sure where the young goat part comes in and all of this, but we do know that there are springs all around and we've gotten to see some already. Now we know that's crazy because right now we're in the literal Dead Sea region. And as per the name, everything should be dead, right? So it's an amazing aspect of creation that we're standing in this oasis, which has water and and trees and, and green plants, so it's totally unexpected. Since this is an oasis, there uh, there's lots of wildlife around, right? As we saw last time. Do you remember we saw three animals? Ibex. Second one was Hyrax, yep. And the third one was the wild boar. Now the Ibex, oh, that was so cool. It's a mountain goat and it's able to walk up the side of cliffs. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And we talked about the how the Ibex uh, was mentioned in Job, the book of Job in the Bible, as a way for God to show his thoughtfulness in his creation. Well, remember that God created the ibex to give birth in a specific position so that the young would not go tumbling down the cliff at birth. But other passages in the Bible mention ibexes, and one I'd like to reference is actually from Deuteronomy, which is in the Torah. So it contains the law, right? Let's go back to something that many of us on the Torah already know, right? Either from this Torah or from prior knowledge that we have about Israel or the Bible. We know that the Jews have a strict diet that they must follow. They have to keep kosher. And we've seen a uh, a few parts of kosher law up to now, such as not eating milk and meat products together, right? That's a main one that I like to go back to and think about in terms of, of kosher. But there really is a lot to keep track of beyond that. Much of the wildlife that we eat as Gentiles is off limits to the Jews. But it's interesting because the Ibex, the Ibex actually isn't. So Deuteronomy... Uh, I, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, I believe, it says that the gazelle and the ibex alike can actually be eaten. So not only is the ibex pretty cool, but what you can take away from this that it actually can be eaten under kosher law. And plus it has the ability to scale mountainsides and and has these awesome antlers. So double awesome. Oh, you know, I I just thought of something interesting because I mentioned the Torah, right? And, And this is a bit of a tangent, but something I've been meaning to tell you because... Well, it's important. I know our tangents seem to happen a lot, but that's part of being on a tour in Israel where so many things connect to so many other things. Have you ever wondered why the book of Genesis is in the Torah? It talks about how the world was founded by God. It doesn't necessarily seem appropriate, at least in my mind, for it to be part of the law section of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, right, according to us. So while the book of Genesis doesn't lay out the law for what the Jews may eat or how they are to worship, it does lay out the law for how the universe is governed and how the universe is to operate. So that's that's really why I think that the book of Genesis belongs in the Torah and why it's fitting 
in that section with the other four books that are laying out more specific, uh, what we might consider to be more specific laws and prohibitions, right? Many people skip past the Torah. And before I traveled to Israel, I was one of them. But then when we're here, we see the significance of the Torah and how it's kept and followed to this day. And it gains significance. I mean, think about it. You and I would have skipped past the verse in the Torah that says, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk, right? We would have glazed right on past that until all of a sudden we couldn't get cheeseburgers in Israel because of the Jews following that command today. After we get to witness firsthand the rules that the Jews follow based on the instructions in the Torah, it's more understandable and relatable for us, which makes us have an interest to look into it more. Okay, another side note. I just mentioned the word Tanakh, right? And I've defined that as the Old Testament. Well, Christians call it the Old Testament because we also have a New Testament, right? And to Jews, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, really is just the Bible because they only have what we will define as the Old Testament. So while the Tanakh is the Old Testament, you might wonder why it's called that. Well, Tanakh is actually an acronym for, for three words, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So the Torah is the law. That's the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Nevi'im is the prophets, people like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, right? People writing uh, about prophecy, about things that will happen. And then the Ketuvim are the writings. So that's going to be everything else that's not Torah or prophets, like the, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Ecclesiastes, some of the documents that we, we have in the Old Testament, right, um, that just aren't, aren't law and aren't prophets. So that's kind of just the random section, you could say. So that's actually Tanakh. Now you know. So back to En Gedi here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. The next animal we saw here was the hyrax. Remember the cute little rock badger? Oh my goodness, I love them. If I could have a pet hyrax, I totally would, but I'm not sure I'd make it out of Ben Gurion Airport with that in my bag. <laughs> but remember the cute little rock badger we saw? And we might even see more hiding in the rocks over here. Who knows? So keep your eyes peeled. So we talked about how ibexes are able to be eaten by the Jews as part of kosher law, but interestingly, the hyrax is not. A few chapters later in Deuteronomy, after the ibex is mentioned, there's a prohibition actually not to eat the hyrax. It says, Of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat, such as these, the camel, the hare, and the rock hyrax. For they chew the cud, but do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. And that's from Deuteronomy 14. So beyond the prohibition to not eat the hyraxes, they're also mentioned in a very positive light in one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, which is Proverbs 30. And I like this because it talks about all these various animals that are small in stature, but super wise. It says there that the hyraxes are not mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. They're such small little animals, maybe in between the size of a rabbit and a raccoon, but they know how to survive out here in the Dead Sea region. This Dead Sea region that we're in is generally where they are found, and it means that they have to be smart about where they hide so that they escape the sun. They have to hide in the rocks to cool off, and they have to find water. Well, makes sense why they're here at En Gedi, right? Lastly, we saw the wild boar, which actually are mentioned in the Bible. These poor boar, they never seem to be painted in a good light. We learned last time that the wild boar have been wreaking some havoc in cities 
as they've been holding up traffic on the streets of Jerusalem or Tel Aviv because they so slowly crossed the road and they've scared some city dwellers who just want to take out their trash and are confronted face to face with a wild boar. There's also a story of Jesus and a wild boar in Luke. Really, they're referred to as, as swine in the translation I'm reading from, but swine, pigs, boar, they're basically all the same. So Jesus meets a man who is demon-possessed, remember? And this man sees Jesus, he recognizes him, and he begs Jesus to take the demons from him. And Jesus actually speaks to the demons by name. He calls them legion because there were so many demons inside of the man. He couldn't refer to them as just one demon. And the demons beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss. So they beg Jesus, weirdly enough, to go enter these, these swine, these wild boar over by a mountain. And Jesus actually allowed that. So the story reads that the demons came out of the man and entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So that's one instance of the wild boar we saw in the last tour also being in the Bible. Ooh, oh, look down. Check, up, check it out. It's on my foot. It's a toad. Do you see those eyes on the toad? Oh my goodness. It's on my foot. Oh boy. The eyes are so ridiculously huge on this thing. Okay, I'm just going to kind of shake this off a little bit, but wow, wow, wow. We just got to see a, well, I'm going to guess it's a Syrian spade foot because the first thing I noticed were those crazy eyes in the toad. Those eyes always creep me out. Considering we're here in this moist area with the waterfall, I can see that there are probably going to be more toads where this one came from. I know it can't hurt me, but there's something about toads that I've just never liked, and, and I know it's on my foot, it's on my shoe, it's not even touching me, but I'm just going to move a little bit to the side here, and then Mr. Syrian Spadefoot, a toad that's, you know, somewhat local to this region, he can just continue right in his way. <laughs> well, the wildlife we can see here at Engedi is one of the best parts of, of this entire place, including the toads. Yeah, they're not going to hurt us. We've spent a good amount of time in the city of Jerusalem, and that's, of course, a city. Wildlife is not going to be as prevalent there. But now that we're in an oasis where the animals just flock, it's great. Well, it's time for you to get up from your nice, shady, cool spot. We're going to continue our hike and learn about the biblical significance of this place. Here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. So I'll just tell you that we're going to be hiking to a cave, but let me explain why this is so cool as we're walking over. To understand, we need to gain a bit of context from the book of 1 Samuel concerning Saul, who was king of Israel, and David, the future king of Israel, and then also a third party, Jonathan, who was Saul's son, and also David's best friend. So in the beginning, Saul really liked David. David had killed Goliath with a slingshot, thus helping Israel be liberated, be freed, right? They were, they were in a good place after that happened. They beat the, the large Philistines. And then David also had soothed Saul with his musical abilities and his harp. And, and then David had married Saul's daughter. So it seems like Saul and David should have been best buds. But for whatever reason, the Bible goes into, goes into some details. You can check that out later. But Saul turned against David and tried to kill him one night by throwing a spear at him. Of course, as you can imagine, David was really put on edge by this. And Saul's son, Jonathan, took David's side. And when he saw his father was trying to kill his best, best friend, he, he made a covenant with David and said that they would always be friends. But he also instructed David that he needed to leave to save his life. Well, 
Saul finds out that Jonathan has helped David escape because David does escape and he's super mad about this. And David, in the meantime, is just trying to save his life. He just wants to live. He ends up doing some crazy things. He eats consecrated bread with the priest Ahimelech. Uh, well, the priest did allow him to do so, but he also acted insane in front of Achish, king of Gath. So Saul's been trying to locate David as all, of this ha- as all of this is happening, where David's off running around doing these things with his mighty men. Well, Saul finally hears about David's location, and he goes off, and, and he's, he's off and running to find him and ultimately kill him. So Saul comes to that priest, whom David had just come to a bit earlier, and Ahimelech refuses to tell David where Saul is gone. He says that David is righteous. Well, sadly, Saul gets really angry, angry and he puts Ahimelech, and the other priest to death. Well, one person escapes out of those about 85 men who were slaughtered. And he tells David that Saul is on his tail and all these events take place in this area because the main point that I'm getting to is guess where David ends up fleeing to? And Gedi, which is right where we're at right now. So Saul finds out and he goes to En Gedi with about 3,000 soldiers. You can imagine this taking place. David's here right in this area where we are standing. He's here with a few of his men just trying to keep their lives. They're ducking in and out of the caves and on the path that we've walked on. And they're trying to go in between the waterfalls. And with every corner that they turn, they watch out for Saul. At one point, Saul has to relieve himself. And this is a famous story where Saul goes into a cave. And it's believed to be that cave right there beyond the waterfall. See it? Yeah, right there. It's the traditional spot for where David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but didn't. And by some weird happenstance, David and his men are hiding in the back of this cave. And David's men encourage him to go kill Saul because they want David to be king. They know he's going to be the next king. Maybe they want to make sure that their lives will be protected. They say it's perfect, right? Saul's alone using the bathroom. He's defenseless. But David refuses to listen to his men. He's not going to kill Saul. Instead, he goes up to Saul without him knowing, and he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. We don't really know if Saul took off his robe to use the bathroom or if he just wasn't focused on his surroundings. And so maybe David was just so quick and quiet that he cut off the robe or the piece of the robe without Saul knowing. There's been a lot of ink spilled over what has happened there. But anyways, later David feels very guilty for just cutting a piece off of Saul's robe. So after Saul gets out of the cave, David calls out to him and he tells him that he would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. And he holds up that piece of his robe. I like what 1 Samuel 24 verse 11 says. It's David speaking. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. No one perceived that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. David basically admits that he desired to kill Saul, but he feared the Lord more. God had anointed Saul as king, and although David knew that he was going to be the next king, God hadn't given that role to David yet. So he demonstrated something that basically every human, (laughs) including me, wishes they had more of. Patience. David had the patience to wait on God. It would have been easy 
for him to take Saul's life, then he could have been king right away. But he knew that wasn't what he was to do in that moment. It's crazy to think that right over there is the cave where all of this happened. And then I can even picture Saul standing right where we are, and David running out from his hiding place in the cave right there and catching Saul's attention. Do you want to go check out the cave? Well, here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, we can do that. Let's go. We have to walk through a few inches of water. Oh well, shoes get wet. <laughs> it's kind of dark in here. You can see how it goes back pretty far. So David could have been all the way back there in the back and Saul could have been up front, probably running in to use the bathroom as a bit of an emergency. I mean, you can imagine Saul's the king, right? And obviously they know that David's around here somewhere and they don't know that he actually doesn't have malicious intentions. He's not going to kill Saul, but they don't know that. So Saul would have been under, under close watch by his men and he would have told his men that he needed to use the restroom and they would have had to scope out a good area for him to use the restroom. And of course, they would have wanted to make sure that David wasn't around. Well, oops on that. And so he, being Saul, he would have had to wait for a little bit. And then he would have not probably run to the back of the cave. He would have just gotten into the cave and, and, and maybe gone around the side, right, and gotten some privacy and relieved himself. So all of that is the traditional spot where all of this took place. And you've been there, so that's pretty cool. But can you imagine David being here in Engedi? Imagine what it would feel like to know that at any moment you could lose your life. Well, that was David's situation, and that actually inspired some of his psalms. I'd like to read you some. As we're standing here in the area of Engedi, and specifically the area where the confrontation between David and Saul took place, you can imagine the dark place David was in. David's supposed to be the next king of Israel. But the current king of Israel is chasing him and trying to take his life. And I can only imagine that in that moment, he doubted God's sovereignty and God's plan in all of this. Let's read one of those psalms, Psalm 57. It was inspired by David's experience fleeing from Saul here in Engedi. Now, listen carefully. I used to hate when my tour guide would read the Bible at sites. It sounds terrible, but I wanted to have the action part already, right? I, I wanted the action to start. I could read the stories later, I thought. But, well, there's something about being at these sites and experiencing them with our own eyes, plus reading the scripture, that somehow equals more significance. It's like a little equation there. So, so listen to this psalm. Be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He rebukes the one who tramples upon me. God will send his favor and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who devour, among sons of mankind whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, God. May your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. 
they themselves have fallen into the midst of it. My heart is steadfast, God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory, awake, harp and lyre. I will awake in the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your goodness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, God. May your glory be above all the earth. Wow. You get the sense from that psalm that David is really struggling. He's trying to cry out to God that he will save him, but he also says that his soul is among lions. He is afraid of being devoured by Saul, presumably. But he tells God that he is steadfast. He says he will be faithful to God. And throughout the psalm, we see a progression, right? Where, where David ends the psalm with exalting God because he almost comes to a newfound trust in God at the conclusion of the psalm. It's like he was working through his struggles. And in the middle, we saw a bit of a, a bit of a turning point, right? Where he recognizes that, yes, he can trust God. And yes, God's glory is above all. And indeed, David was faithful to God. After Saul recognized his great sin against David by chasing him, he repented. And there were still some issues between them, but this was a major turning point in the story when Saul said, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. Now, we don't have time to read some of the other psalms written here at Angedi, but go ahead and look into them on your own. Now you'll have a visual of the situation David was in and the place he was at when writing them. I guarantee that it will give you a new understanding of these psalms. Well, that's En Gedi, the natural oasis in the desert and the place that has great biblical significance as it's where David hid from Saul and had the opportunity to kill him, but didn't. Let's go ahead and hike on out and hop back on the bus to get to our next stop. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we head about 30 minutes north to Qumran, the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It's an episode you won't want to miss as we will meet up with Dr. Jody Magnus, an archaeologist and expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls and Qumran. She'll lead us through the site and answer some of your burning questions concerning Qumran's past and the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I hope you'll join us next time on the Virtual Voyage.